Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Zandi, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and this is a special bonus podcast. We did a webinar uh, on the outlook for the economy a couple of weeks ago. Got a ton of questions. I mean, when I say a ton, uh, at least several hundred questions. I think there were, I'm trying to remember, I think there was uh, 1,700, people on the webinar. Lots of questions. And uh, we uh, taped a Q&A. Uh, myself, uh, Chris Dorides, the Deputy Chief Economist, and Marissa DiNatale, Senior Economist, and uh, uh, responded to those uh, cues and thought, hey, this might be a pretty good podcast. People might be interested in this. Uh, if uh, our clients are asking these questions, our listeners to the podcast are probably doing the same thing. So here it is. Uh, ho hope you enjoy it. I hope you find it of some value um, and uh, let us know. Uh, so here we go. Hello, everyone. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics, and I'm joined by uh, my two uh, colleagues that were in the webinar earlier this week, Chris Dorides. Uh Chris is the Deputy Chief Economist. Hey, Chris. Hey, Mark. And uh, Marissa DiNatale. Marissa uh, keeps the train on the tracks uh, and uh, also participated in the webinar earlier this week. This purpose of this conversation is to go over the uh, blizzard of questions we received on the webinar. We answered a, a lot of the questions in the webinar, so we won't reprise that, but there are a lot of other questions that we didn't get to, and uh, we'll, we'll do that here. And the way we're gonna do this is we're eat, we kind of categorize the questions that people asked, and we, we're gonna talk about them uh, uh, in those categories. And I'm going to uh, ask a, a, first, a, Chris, a question around housing and mortgage markets. Uh, and I should say this is kind of in no order of particular importance. Uh, so uh, don't mean to uh, say this is the most important kind of thing that we're talking about here, but just to, just to get the, the conversation going, we're gonna talk about housing and mortgage finance. And Chris, the, the question that uh, that uh, many people asked was how we have a correction in our, in our baseline forecast, a house price correction. Yep. Down, uh, based on our repeat sales, Moody's Analytics repeat sales index down peak to trough. I'm, I'm rounding, but 10% ish, you know, and that yeah. prices rose 40% from the start of the pandemic to the peak last summer. They're down maybe a percent or two since then. And we're expecting all in when it's all said and done by the end of 24 going into 25, the prices will be down nationwide by about 10%. So we're going to retrace one fourth of the price increase that occurred earlier in the pandemic. And the question is, well, uh, why 10%? You know, you know, what's the logic behind that? And why not something more severe? Why, why won't we experience a crash? Which, it, no hard definition of a crash, but if you use the financial crisis as a gauge, prices were down, say, 25%-ish, depending on the price index. That would be, in my nomenclature, a, a crash. So why, why not down 25 in, in the baseline? Uh, take, it's, take a crack at that. Sure, and it's a good question because we did go up forty percent over two years, which was much much more than we actually did during the uh, housing boom. So, if you just extend the analogy, you would expect why not retrace most of that? And I think it comes down to uh, supply and demand factors in the housing market today relative to what we we saw back then, right? So. We still have a very uh, large housing deficit. There's more demand for housing today than the actual supply. So in order to get an actual sharp decline in, in pricing, you would expect that demand would have to pull back significantly. And uh, we just don't see that. We see that there are many young adults in particular still living at home, 
who want to buy a home or rent a home. They're just not able to. If prices start to correct just a little bit, though, provided the labor market holds up, you would expect some of them coming in uh, to provide support. All right, so that's that's one factor. The other factor, uh, perhaps you can you classify this a bit more on the supply side in terms of existing homeowners. They're actually in uh, a much more uh, solid financial condition than they were uh, back during the housing bust. Right, homeowners today have much more equity in their home. Mortgage standards have been very tight, so they've had to come up with large down payments. If they were getting a mortgage, they had to be super qualified, right? There are no liar loans, there are no um, exploding arms, right? So we have more traditional fixed rate mortgages at this point locked in at very low interest rates. So there's no real impetus for existing homeowners to default on their mortgage, or I should say there's less impetus for them to default on their mortgages. And you really need a, a steady stream of foreclosures to really cause prices to fall dramatically, at least in, in the short run. So for those reasons, I'd say there, the likelihood that we actually see a very sharp correction is pretty low, unless we get hit by some other shock and unemployment goes up to 10%. That's, that's a different story. Then you will get that type of uh, foreclosure activity. So our forecast why it's 5%, 10% uh, peak to trough decline, it's really more of a gradual adjustment period here. We got ahead of ourselves when it came to prices um, over the last couple of years because low interest rates juice demand. Um, but there's no, again, there's no real need to sell. So it's going to take some time for the prices to adjust gradually to a point where incomes and home prices are better aligned. So that that's the nature of the forecast. But it does assume that Lots of things continue to work in the economy when it comes to labor market and incomes. So, good, good. So, so a correction, but not a crash. Yeah, correct. Yep. yep. In the baseline, the baseline is a soft economy. The job market essentially going sideways, unemployment moving up a bit, but not a recession. If we had a recession, kind of a typical, uh, kind of in terms of severity and length, then the price declines would be more significant than that, right? That's right. I'd even argue that it would, it would actually have to be a pretty substantial recession because of that imbalance in supply and demand. The other thing that makes today so different is that just the demographics are very different. We have a very large number of young adults looking for homes that we didn't have uh, back in the housing bust. So you do, you'd actually need unemployment to rise substantially, in my opinion, to get that type of um, real uh, significant decline in home prices. Got it. Got it. Uh, a uh, related question turning to uh, mortgage credit quality. So obviously, if you're in a declining house price environment with uh, rising unemployment, that would suggest uh, more credit problems, uh, more delinquency default. But the question is, we haven't seen that yet so far. I mean, unemployment's very low. Layoffs are non-existent. Uh, yeah, house prices have kind of gone flat here, down a little bit, but people have built up a boatload of equity. Why are we seeing mortgage delinquency rates tick higher here? And, and you know, when I, I, the data I look at would be the data that we bank from Equifax, the credit bureau, which is a census of all the mortgage loans outstanding. And I was just looking at that through the month of January, and you are starting to see a tick up uh, in uh, delinquency. Did you want to comment on that? Why why haven't why are we seeing any pickup at all in delinquency here, despite the the, the the better conditions, the good conditions? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. And we saw, you're right, in Equifax data, you can see we just had the MBA delinquency rate series come out today as we're recording. Oh, is that right? That also showed some some uptick here. And I, I when I think about it, I, I, a couple of reasons. One is just normalization, right? We, had, in some sense, we had artificially depressed the delinquencies with moratorium, with stimulus check, right? Made it easier for folks to make uh, make their payments. They didn't have to make their payments for a while. They didn't have to make student loan payments, right? So there were reasons why the delinquency rate was depressed during the pandemic, which was beyond normal, right? That wasn't uh, equilibrium. So you take off some of those supports and naturally you're going to come back up to uh, some increase in delinquencies. And of course, people go delinquent on their mortgage for a variety of reasons. It's not just um, unemployment necessarily, right? There are other life events, other things that happen that cause people to uh, uh, be unable to make make payments and actually uh, go in, into foreclosure. So that's part of it. Um, I do think that uh, even within the the homeowner community, you have a lot of variation in terms of uh, uh, demographics. You have folks higher income, obviously, but you do have folks at the lower income end of the distribution, and they are running out of their savings, as we talked about on the uh, on the webinar, right? So even if their jobs are plenty, there are they are facing financial pressures due to high inflation, right? So unfortunately, there are reasons why folks um, are going delinquent. The delinquencies are ticking up. Right, so that's definitely something to monitor, but they're still low relative to prior to the pandemic. So again, at this point, I still see this more as a normalization. Even prior to the pandemic, the delinquency rate was was very low. So um, I'm I'm not terribly worried quite yet. Let's talk in a couple months if we continue to see this rise very dramatically. But uh, something to keep your eye on. But I, I wouldn't. Uh, I wouldn't overreact at this point to the trend. Yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, but most of the I think tick up in delinquency has been for FHA loans, right? It's still not that's right significant degree for Fannie Freddie loans or non-conforming loans. Uh, do I have that right? That's right. So FHA, which do tend to skew lower in yeah. terms of income and credit, so that kind of makes sense. And I, I'm sure if you dig into the even the conforming, you would see that pattern as well. Uh, right. So yeah. again, I, it seems all going according to script in terms of uh, what we would what you would expect in a normalized uh, economy. So. Yeah. Okay. There was also a question that we put into this housing block uh, around rents. Uh, you know, I made a point to say that rent growth has gone flat to down here in recent months, uh, given that. You know, we're getting more supply as supply chains ease, a lot more multifamily units are getting completed. And we still have a lot of units, a record number of units in the pipeline going to completion that will get completed over the next year or so. Uh, so more supply and, and demand has been hit by the previous surge in rents. Rents surged with house prices and the rents are so high now that people can't even afford those. And so we're getting what economists call demand destruction, you know, people can't form households. So it's less demand, more supply, rents are weakened, have weakened. And that's that's really key to the outlook for inflation because particularly consumer price inflation, because a third of the CPI index is the cost of housing services, which are tied back to rents. But the question was, well, I'm, when I look at the CPI for housing services, rents, you know, rent of shelter, I don't see this slowing that, you know, Mark talked about. Do you want to comment on that just to Square the circle there for people. You know the, the link between market rents that we're observing now and the and the CPI for for housing services. Uh, sure. So 
to, to keep it simple, it really comes down to whether you're looking at rents across the entire housing stock, the entire rental market, including people who are already in their leases, right? They're not facing uh, rent adjustments month to month. They're facing rent adjustments once a year. So you want to measure how rents are moving across the entire housing market, or do you want to focus on how rents for new units, right? New units that are coming online for rental, uh, how those how those rent prices are moving. Right, so the CPI, consumer price index, is is looking across the entire market, trying to account for the cost of shelter in the economy overall. Right, so it includes a lot of a, a lot of rents that are um, not moving month to month. Most of them are actually locked in, so it takes time for any type of adjustment on the new lease side to actually make its way into that that broader index. Right, so what you were referring to is that data that looks at um, changes in asking rents or effective rents on new leases, right? And that clearly is slowing and is actually negative or declining in certain markets. So, yeah. so that's the distinction, right? Yep. Okay. Very good. Okay. Let me hand the baton to you, Chris, because I think yep. you're going to ask Marissa some questions around the, the job in labor, uh, the, the job market and, um, and wages and jobs and all those kinds of things. So take yep. it away. Yeah, there are lots of questions uh, related to jobs and wages, as you can imagine. That's a pretty big uh, part of our uh, topic and the outlook right now. You know, we really didn't touch much on the uh, January jobs report. And so we did have a question or two here re related to, to that report, which showed this tremendous job growth. And uh, I get the question to you, Marissa, is, well, do you believe that? Do you expect that to get revised? What do you think is uh, the right number or the, uh, the number that will be, it will be revised to? Um, that's a great question because it was such an outlier, right? It it showed that in January over half a million jobs were added on net, and we were expecting something, you know, a little north of 230, 240, something like that, as as were most economists. So it was almost double what people were expecting. I, I think Chris was at 180, if I recall correctly. So Point, putting that out. Mm, some economists, <laughs> right, were even further off. We're talking about the revisions, though. Let's see. Let's I, we see. are talking about the revisions. Okay, so we'll come back in a year and we'll see how you did. Um, yeah, I mean, so like all economic data, the employment data get revised multiple times, right? So there's a first release, there'll be two more revisions in the next two months. And then we have these annual benchmark revisions, which actually were just released in January, uh, benchmarking the March 22 data. So you get all kinds of revisions, first of all. So yes, it will definitely be revised. The question is to what extent it will be revised. Um, there's, I mean, I think there's a few clues that there it could be overstating uh, certainly job growth. I mean, one, it's just so far out of bounds of what we've seen from month to month. So, you know, why, what would have happened in January to make all of a sudden the 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 labor market turn on a dime so suddenly? One was it was much warmer in many parts of the country, particularly in the Northeast and the Midwest, than it has been for past Januaries. Um, that makes all kinds of, introduces all kinds of seasonal problems when the BLS tries to seasonally adjust the data. So things like construction, right, where any any sort of 
industry that happens outside, you usually see a big drop in employment in January. And if you don't get that big job drop because it's warm, it pushes up the job number. Other things like retail, which had been really weak in December, but it had been stronger in the fall, that could be off because perhaps not as many people were let go after holiday hiring surge as they normally are. Another thing that I was looking at was the number of people out sick obviously has been extremely elevated each January since COVID began. This January, it was almost back to normal, surprisingly, despite the fact that everyone I know is sick. If you look at the past two Januaries in 2020, 2020, 21, 2022, this January 23, it was almost back to like a pre-COVID level of people that were not working because they were sick. So I think there's, again, some, some seasonal adjustment, perhaps issues going on with trying to account for patterns in, in recent years. The other clue, and I, I think this is another question you maybe were going to ask me, but it's along these lines, is another clue we have is that this, as I mentioned, this benchmark revision for March of 2022 was released. And uh, that, showed, that showed that actually more jobs were created between April 21 and March 22 than the BLS was first estimating. But there's been more recent data from the quarterly census of employment and wages that goes through June of 2022 that suggests that at least between March and June, job growth looks like it was overstated by BLS and that there will be downward revisions during that period. So we could have entered a week period it could have been relegated to last summer. This was after the Russian invasion of Ukraine in late February. This is when inflation really started to take off, right? To a, it, it doubled between like March, the pace of inflation doubled between March and April alone. So it could have been sort of a summertime weakness, but it could also be suggestive that just kind of all of 2022 might be overstated a bit. So that's a very long-winded way of saying, yeah, it's going to get revised, likely down. Okay, down, but down a lot. Do you do you, do you think that there's still underlying strength? Absolutely, I, I do. I, I, I think all, all these other indicators that we have on the job market point to the fact that the job market is still quite strong, right? Um, pretty much everything else that you can point to shows that it's strong. So I don't think it's going to look like job losses by any means. Um, but I, I don't think that half a million jobs a month is our underlying pace of job growth. I think it's probably about half that. Okay. Okay. I guess related to that and also a key to the, uh, the Fed's outlook is uh, wage growth. Mm -hmm. And what are your thoughts? The question was on uh, what are your thoughts or expectations for wage growth in 2023 and 2024? So wage growth right now by a bunch of different metrics uh, is running at about 5% year over year. Um, and we think by the end of this year, by the end of 2023, it's going to be about 4% or maybe just under 4%. So we're going to come down a little bit. The Fed would like to see wage growth as measured by the ECI at about 3.5%. So even by the end of this year, we're still going to be a bit above the Fed's target when they look at wage growth, which is really key to them because that goes to growth in prices of core services. You know, the 
biggest input cost of core services is labor. And so if if wage growth is very, very strong, then companies are more likely to raise their prices to offset um, that that strong increase in wages. So by the end of the year, we think we get down to around 4%. It continues to slowly decelerate through about the third quarter of 2024. And that's about the point when it hits three and a half percent. So you're looking at probably middle of 2024 before we get to that three and a half percent mark. But we have seen evidence in recent months, just since the fall through the data that we're getting now, that wage growth does seem to be cooling off a bit by all different metrics. So the ECI, the uh, Atlanta Fed's wage tracker, even average hourly earnings, which we always have some caveats about, but nevertheless, the trends are kind of all going in the same way, which looks like wage growth is cooling. Okay, so our forecast calls for a, a cooling uh, labor market. We actually have some increase in unemployment, cooling uh, wages. Uh, last question for you is, uh, is this going to impact or how will it impact the upper income versus lower income uh, earners out there, right? Where would you expect to see more of the job losses or more of the weakness in wages, let's say? Well, so the wages that got really, really juiced during, let's say, the summer of 2021, 2022 is sort of peak wage growth time. Um, and wages peaked, I believe, in July of 22. The industries that saw the fastest wage growth were among the lower earning industries. So it was industries like leisure hospitality and retail um, and to a lesser degree healthcare, where we saw the fastest wage growth. And that's because these were the industries that um, were you know, hurting the most for workers initially. They lost the most jobs and laid off the most workers during the pandemic and then trying to very quickly rehire all those people and finding out that not all those people were around anymore and available for work. And so wage growth, the, the poster child would be leisure hospitality. This is bars and restaurants and hotels. Wage growth peaked at about 12% year over year um, during the summer. And that's come, that has come way down. I mean, now it's just a little bit above average. I think the last time I looked, it was like six or 7%. So in terms of growth in wages, I think it is going to be sort of the lower end of the income spectrum that's going to see the most marked kind of drop off in, in growth in wages. I think if we look at um, the coming year and what industries are likely to slow the most or even lose jobs. Those are going to be really the interest rate sensitive segments of the economy. So we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen construction job losses, but we expect at some point this will happen as the housing market continues to slow or bottom out. There is real, there's a lot of, maybe you disagree, there's a lot of strength on the multifamily side that could that could offset what's happening on the residential side. But nevertheless, I think we agree we would see a slowdown at least yeah. in jobs there. Um, and then we already are seeing, we've heard about a lot of high profile layoff announcements in tech and financial services. And you do see that in the job numbers already. So if you look at information services, uh, that broad industry lost jobs in both January and December. So, and those tend to be higher paid uh, industries. And, and again, those are the more interest rate sensitive segments. So I think those higher paid industries are going to probably face a lot of uh, 
maybe near-term pain with rising rates. Longer term, if we if we were to fall into a broad-based recession and consumer spending pulls back, then it's going to be pretty ubiquitous throughout all of these categories. But the most marked slowing in wages should be leisure, hospitality, retail, these, these industries that saw really fast wage growth. Oh, great. I'll uh, then pass the baton to you, Marissa. Uh, the next okay. Episode. She's going to so, pepper me, I understand, right? I am going to yeah. pepper you yeah. with, okay. with questions, a okay. variety. So let's start with some questions around um, uh, federal fiscal policy and the debt and what's going on with the debt limit. So there, we talked about this and we, we highlighted it as maybe the major risk for 2023. Can you talk about that a little more? What Two things. What's the drop dead date for the debt ceiling? And two, where do you place the probability of the U.S. government actually defaulting on its debt? So to the first question, we don't know for sure because that depends on the X date, the, the date at uh, when the Treasury won't have enough cash on hand to pay all its bills in a timely way. Someone's not going to get paid on time. That's the X date is, is unknown because it depends on uh, revenues and expenditures over time that are very uncertain. We don't, particularly the April tax payments, you don't, we, the treasury has an idea about how much they're going to re, uh, receive in tax payments, but they don't know exactly how much and, and exactly when they're going to receive those payments. So it's uh, uncertain. Uh, uh, CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, the uh, the nonpartisan uh, agency that does the budgeting for the, for the federal government came out with a report uh, yesterday, it was a, actually a pretty good report. Uh, yesterday would be the 15th of February. Uh, and uh, uh, they said it would be sometime between July and I think October. Uh, we were, were doing our, we are doing our own work. In fact, to be more specific, Bernard Yaros, you know, our colleague, uh, good colleague who follows this very carefully, looks at spending day by day, revenues day by day, goes back, you know, looks at this period last year to see what is happening to determine what's going to happen going forward uh, is is uh, coalescing around the uh, August 8th as the exact day at which the treasury will breach the limit. He's going to update That's my the- birthday. Oh, is it really? There you go. Yeah. yeah. What a what a gift. Yeah. <laughs> It'll go down in infamy for sure. <laughs> uh so but that can change and, and we'll see. You know, uh Bernard will uh continually update that uh, X date as we go forward here. Uh, you know, one thing that might happen is if it is August 8th, uh, Congress and administration might agree to a temporary suspension of the debt limit to make it coincide with the uh, the next fiscal year budget. Because that's the other thing that has to happen by the end of September is uh, a, a passing of the budget to keep the government funded, to keep it open. So they, they might kick the can a little bit down the road to the end of September and say, we're going to solve both these problems at the same time, do something about the debt limit, but also pass a budget to keep the government uh, open. And that that would be my guess as to what they do. So the X date would actually get kicked down to September 30th, uh, would be my guess. Um, uh, you know, if uh, they don't uh, suspend or increase the debt limit by that point in time, and Treasury doesn't pay someone on time, it, whether that be you know, Social Security recipient, uh, the military uh, bondholder or treasury bondholder, or uh, just the electric bill, that, in my view, is a default. The government has defaulted. 
And I think that would be uh, the fodder for uh, what I would call a TARP moment when uh, stock prices fall, uh, chaos in the fixed income markets, the bond market, it would be a mess uh, and, and would like in all likelihood undermine our baseline forecast of no recession. We would almost certainly go into recession at that point. Uh, in terms of the probabilities of that actually happening, for the government to actually breach the limit and, and not pay someone on time, it's low. Uh, but I'd say it feels higher than it has at any point in time in the 30 years that I've been following debt limit battles. Even the 2011, if folks recall, in 2011, we had a pretty uh, uh, very uh, um, ugly debt limit battle that ended in a downgraded U.S. government debt by uh, S&P, Standard & Poor's, mm -hmm. and the U.S. lost its AAA rating, according to S&P, not Moody's. Moody's still has the AAA, but uh, according to S&P. Um, and that was pretty messy, but this feels like it could be messier, just given the very vexed politics and the fact that the House of Repu the House is controlled by Repu Republicans, but by a very thin majority, five seats, and of course, the Speaker of the House, McCarthy, is there, it seems to have his, his support is very tenuous. And the change in the rules make it such that, you know, he, he uh, it's going to make it very difficult for them to come to some kind of consensus on what to do and actually execute on it in a timely way. So having said all of that, our baseline is that they will get it together by the X date, sign on the dotted line, pass a piece of legislation, and life goes on. Uh, but, you know, I, I would say there's a non-zero probability, probably, you know, in the single digits that, you know, they either, uh, 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 they, they breach it either because it was intentional or more likely it was just a mistake. You know, they couldn't get it together in time mm -hmm. to pass that, to pass that legislation. So, you know, a single digit kind of probability at that point. And if you look at our risk matrix, which, you know, Chris went through yeah. in detail in the in the uh, webinar, you can see that it is, uh, you know, uh, a low probability event, but if it happens, it's a big deal. It's a big problem for the economy. Yep, yep. Uh, on a related note, and this is a question we get a lot. What are the, the longer run macroeconomic consequences of continuing to rack up debt, which is now what the statutory limits, what, 31 trillion, something like this. So longer run, is this a problem for the U.S. economy? Uh, I, yeah, I think it is. Uh, I, don't, I don't think it's a problem for the here and now. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not an issue for next quarter or next year. But if policy doesn't change, and again, you can go back to that CBO paper that was released yesterday on, on the 15th, they do uh, a long-term forecast for the economy and the budget. You can see that the, the government's uh, debt load rises from just under 100% currently to, uh, uh, I think it's 110 percentage points uh, by 10 years from now. It's about a, It rises about a percentage point Per annum, I might have that. I might not have that exactly right, but that gives you orders of magnitude. The thing that really is pernicious, though, is the increase in interest expense on the debt. Mm. And if you look at that as a share of GDP, right now it's it's low. It's about two and a half percent of GDP, maybe even a little bit lower than that. But that's going to rise about a percentage point, you know, in the coming decade. So we'll go from two and a half to three and a half, and then the next decade, three and a half to four and a half. And at some point, you know, it's 
we're going to be spending more on interest expense than we are on, let's say, the military. And, you know, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I don't think people aren't very comfortable with that, wouldn't be very comfortable with that. So I do think we need to uh, address our long-term fiscal issues. And the, the first thing we need to make sure that we do, I think, is, is if there's any legislation that would cut taxes or increase spending, it needs to be paid for by tax increases or other spending cuts. So that it's deficit, any legislation is deficit neutral, you know, at least deficit neutral going forward. Um, you know, and to some degree, the the Inflation Reduction Act, that was the last piece of legislation passed in, in the last Congress uh, in the Biden administration, that that satisfied that rule. In fact, it it will lower the budget deficit in in uh, subsequent decades. In the first decade, first first 10 years of that uh, of that of the uh, of that uh, in a, after that legislation, it's 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 budget neutral. Uh, might reduce the deficit a little bit, ten year cumulative deficit a little bit. But if you go out the second ten years and the third ten years, it lowers the deficit. So if we can do something like that with new pieces of legislation, then I think we'll be we'll be okay. One other uh, point: uh, uh, if the borrowing costs of the government. Uh, the interest rate they pay, the average interest rate across all the debt, is less than the nominal growth rate in the economy, then you can run deficits. It's that sustainable because your debt to GDP ratio won't rise. It's a it's a, it's a just a, a budget you know it's, it's a product of budget math. If and you know since the financial crisis up till now that's been the case. You know so called R the interest rate on the debt has been less than G, the nominal growth rate of the economy. So that gave us a lot of so-called fiscal space. We could use, you know, uh, we could we could borrow aggressively and help get us navigate through the pandemic and and uh, get to the other side of that and, you know, not be in a dire situation. But now interest rates are higher. R is higher, like the 10-year treasury yield is now close, close to 4%. Uh, and G is probably about 4%. That's nominal potential growth rate of the economy. So we're getting pretty close to R equals G. And if R rises above G, then, in, then we can't run def- big, you can't run deficits. I mean, that, then debt will become unsustainable. So uh, we're getting to a place where we really do need to think about uh, you know, our long-run fiscal situation. I'll say one last thing about all this and tie it all together. I don't think though we can get the political will generate the political will to do anything substantive about this until interest expenses a share of GDP is measurably higher until a lawmaker can tell the population the electorate look you know if we don't do something we're going to be paying more to Chinese bondholders Japanese bondholders Saudi bondholders British bondholders than we're we're we're, we're paying to defend ourselves around the world in, in our military budget so once that happens, once the interest expense is high enough that someone can connect those dots for people, I think that's when we will make a change. In fact, that's what we did back in the 90s. You know, if you go back to the 1990s, the last time we really uh, addressed our long-term fiscal situation, that's when interest expense was 6 7% of GDP. And that was Clinton, Bob Rubin, who was the Treasury Secretary at the time, could, you know, generate the political will to pass the kind of legislation they needed to address that. And we ended up by the end of the 1990s with a surplus, you may remember the, I think the last year we had an actual surplus was 2000, Y2K, something like that. You know, a lot of other factors contributed to that, but the fiscal discipline was very important. So 
my point is, I, I don't think we're going to really do, I don't, I'm not counting on lawmakers doing anything of substance here, maybe not doing any more damage, but nothing of substance to address this problem until, you know, they can connect uh, the dots for the electorate. And that's going to require interest expense being a lot higher as a share of GDP. Okay. That was okay, a good th point. Yeah. No, that was, that was great. And I think that answered all the questions sort of on the, the, um, the fiscal side. Oh, good, good, good. Do you want me to take the baton? Yeah, why don't you take okay. the baton and then I'll come back to you later. Okay, very good. Uh, so Chris, you're up again, and I think we're gonna talk okay. about inflation. And okay. we've got a bevy of questions around inflation and I'll, I'll start you off with an easy one. You know, What's behind this high inflation? What is the cause of the high inflation that we're suffering right now? Well, um, let's see, you have a uh, demand exceeding uh, supply. <laughs> <laughs> right in a, in a foundationally right we still have the uh high oil prices high gas prices right still certainly relative to where they were uh, a year ago right so that's still a factor here in terms of uh, the overall inflation that we're fe we're feeling as well as uh, that then feeding into food prices uh but then uh as the the uh, fed has highlighted right we are certainly focused more on the service side of, of the uh price spectrum as well. And we are getting those uh, housing costs that we referred to earlier, still continuing to put upward pressure on prices overall. And, and that's just gonna take time to work its way through, uh, given the lags between rents and, and home prices. And um, beyond that, we have uh, concerns about the, the service sector X housing, right? So some of those high wages that uh, Marissa referred to, right, uh, continue to put some upward pressure. We have that, at the core, it's been the supply chain issues that have kept uh, uh, prices high over the last uh, few months. Those are continuing to fade, but they're not gone entirely yet. And so that's that's certainly part of the equation as well. Well, can I just, the way I frame it, and just tell me what you think. Sure. Um, is <laughs> It's because, certainly not the way I frame it. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's uh, just to make it, you know, you, there's a lot of moving parts here, right? Yep. And you, you, you're the way you answered it. You talked about each of the moving parts a little, a little bit, but more, most fundamentally, in my mind, it's the pandemic and the Russian invasion that the pandemic scrambled supply chains, scrambled labor markets. Still to this day, you know we're suffering from that. I mean, new vehicle prices have yet to, they're still going up, you know, because of supply chain issues limiting production globally and creating shortages. Uh, and the Russian invasion caused oil prices to jump, ag prices to jump, and that's still filtering through. And, the, and the, it was the combination of those two things, those two shocks to the supply side of the economy that kind of came to the conflated and then drove up inflation expectations. And that's when inflation kind of metastasized, got into wage demands and wage growth. And that then broadened out the inflationary pressures to the service side of the economy where there's a lot of uh, labor-intensive activities, healthcare, hospitality, that kind of thing. So, at core, uh, it feel like if, if we didn't have the, if we had just had the pandemic, I, I suspect we would not have been talking about inflation in 2022. But we had the pandemic, and then we had the Russian invasion, and then we were—that's all we were talking about—is inflation because of the, of those two shocks. Now there is a there's the you know the the, the idea that. You know, demand has been all juiced up by fiscal support. You know, and at this point, we're talking about 
the American Rescue Plan, which was passed in March of 2021, which is now 18 months, you know, in the plus in the rearview mirror. Uh, and I would argue that, yes, that certainly helped to lift demand and inflation back in the spring summer of 2021. But that's long gone in terms of its impact on, on the economy, in terms of lifting inflation. This is mostly about just adjusting to the, you know, the, the, the continued fallout from the, uh, these two massive supply shocks. So how would you, how would you, what do you think? Of, yeah, you know, I think yeah. that, I think that's most of it. I, I don't want to discount demand entirely though, or even a su su substantial amount, not only the fiscal supports you talked about, but there have been some behavioral shifts in demand throughout this period as yeah, well, right? Point. So early on, yeah. pandemic, we all chase goods and that causes prices to, to rise. And then we start, then afterwards, we ch all chase services and that's causing prices to rise, right? So there's uh, the demand side of it is certainly driving uh, inflation I, as well. I, I would, but I would say that's the pandemic. That goes back to the shock. Yeah, yeah. But it affects demand and supply. You're saying, I, you, you, you know, it's it's yeah. the pandemic. Yeah. So okay, it's the pandemic. But I think often we think of the pan, or many think of the pandemic from the supply side only. Yeah. Right? The supply yeah. chains got scrambled. That's why we can't get all get all the goods what we yeah. wanted. Right. Well, but we also want more. We wanted more goods than we uh, than we wanted previously. So. Right. Right. Okay. Um, that was the easy one. That was the well. I was. I actually was. That was sarcastic. That was thick with sarcasm. That was sick. All right. Here's another one. This is yeah. Is not so easy. <laughs> it goes to the Inflation Reduction Act. That's the uh, piece of legislation. The last piece of legislation passed in the Biden administration that you know addressed uh, prescription drugs, uh, uh, you know, health insurance premiums. But the big part of that was around climate and trying to incent through tax incentives and other means, uh, the move from fossil fuel to uh, clean, to uh, green energy. Uh, and you know, the question is, is, do you view that as inflationary or disinflationary? How do you, and you can, you can answer that in any way you want, near-term, long-term, because the questioner didn't ask, but you know, they're, they're pretty, if you read the question that they asked, they're, they're, they're coming from the prism that, you know, you're just adding costs and because this is costly to move from fossil fuel to clean and that's going to be inflationary. It's not going to be, and it's going to take a long time before you make that transition. And maybe once you make that transition, it will lower inflation, but in the interim, it's going to be inflationary. How do you, how do you think about that? It's a, it's a, it's a bit complicated, but yeah, I, 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 I would agree with that general sense that it's uh, it add it does, uh, add cost in the short term and longer term, everything will work out. However, you know, as we think about inflation, we think about broad-based changes in prices, right? So clearly, this the the IRA could um, it, it will impact EV prices, right? They're they're suddenly it's incenting more EV production. Uh, presumably, that uh, that also is driving some of the additional demand that's out there. So you could see that the prices on EVs and the materials going to EVs for example, could be uh, impacted. But that's a pretty small sector of the broader economy, right? Is that affecting enough other prices that it's a general increase in, in, in price levels? I don't think so. And I, I think that many aspects of the IRA are, are like that, like heat pumps, right? Again, there can be certain uh, aspects or certain parts of the uh, consumer basket that, that do get impacted. But um, 
is it going to have such a broad-based impact? That I don't know that it's all that much uh, at the end of the day. And it is spread out over time, right? We're still trying to figure this piece of legislation out. So, mm -hmm. I, for, for example, I don't see this as being a, a major driver of the inflation that we're experiencing right mm -hmm. now, right? I don't think the, the act itself has uh, been figured out enough to really have a, a major impact on, on prices, even from an anticipatory standpoint. We're still, still trying to figure out what these incentives mean, what's an SUV, what's a car, right? So there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of answers or a lot of questions yet to be answered there. So I, I think it'll have some impact in the short term, but over over time, I think those would be um, fully digested. Yeah, I think that makes a little sense to me. I mean, the one thing that really was struck home for me during this period since the Russian, Russian invaded Ukraine and oil prices jumped it's just how critical oil prices are to inflation. You know, it's not only the direct effect on, you know, how much we pay at the pump or how much we pay for electricity. It's the, you know, the indirect effects on like food prices, uh, you know, because you know, the diesel, the cost of diesel, getting the food from the farm to the store shelf. And even more important than that, the very strong link to inflation expectations and wages. And, you know, I think the reason we're, struggling the the most significant reason we're struggling with inflation now the thing is you know that's going to be most persistent is the is the strong wage growth and getting that back down to something more consistent with the fed's target and and we're having trouble with that we've had trouble with that because of the higher oil prices and how that's affected people's thinking about future inflation so i don't think we can underestimate how important it is for us to get off fossil fuel we have just to get off, you know, even this, it's critical in the long run for lots of obvious reasons around CO2 emissions, temperature rise, and all the costs of climate change. But in the near term, I think we just, we just you know, we're, we're so reliant on whether OPEC is going to increase production by a half a million barrels a day or whether what the Russians are going to do, or, you know, it's just, that just seems like a nutty place to be if you don't have to be there. So I think we need to get away from a fossil fuel as fast as humanly possible. Uh, to, and it really does matter in terms of, you know, getting inflation in. I do agree that, that, you know, climate mitigation, climate adaptation adds to costs and will be inflationary. But as you point out, that plays out over a long period of time. I don't, I don't think that, that doesn't add a percentage point to inflation in any given year. It might add the basis points to inflation in a given year, you know, something like that. Anyway, um, okay, that's the uh, that's inflation. Let me pass the, now the baton back to you, Chris, and I think you're going to uh, ask um, Marissa another set of questions. I can't remember which. Oh, recession questions. We got a bunch recession of questions. questions. Yeah, recession. yeah, we got a lot of questions about our scenarios and that kind of thing. Yeah, right? that's right. That's right. I'm going to start off with this, this question about excess savings. We we did spend quite a bit mm -hmm. of time talking about excess savings, and uh, Mark talked about some of the demographic effects. This one's really about the timing, though. So when do you think the excess savings run out? And do you think inflation can be tamed before then? Right. I thought that they had already run out for the bottom part of the income uh, yeah. years, right? So we, we had showed this chart that showed that excess savings peaked back in the summer um, and they've been drawn down pretty substantially over the past few quarters, um, but we're still looking at over a trillion and a half, uh, right, in yep. in excess savings across all income tiers. Um, 
every time you put the estimates together, there's still more savings there than I think than I, than I would logically think there would be given just how pernicious inflation has been, particularly for people at the lower part of the income spectrum, right? They spend more of their income on gas and groceries and that sort of thing. And indeed, it, it, there, it, there isn't, I, I, don't, I don't think there is much left there for lower income households, folks probably at the bottom 20% of the income tier. Um, are we going to get inflation under control by the time it runs out? Uh, well, if you define under control as being back to the Fed's target, um, perhaps not, because that very likely isn't going to happen until either the very end of this year or early next year. And here I'm talking about the lower, the lowest mm. tier of the income spectrum, not not overall. Um, so. I think it de it depends how you define under control. If you define under control as it's on a clear downward trajectory, which I think we all believe that it is, right? There may be some month-to-month -month fluctuations like we just saw in, in this week's um, CPI release. You might have some bumps along the road, but I think we clearly believe that inflation is on a downward trajectory. So I think that th the risk is that excess savings runs out for the lower income tiers, perhaps this year, maybe in the middle of the year. And we're still looking at inflation that is above the Fed's target um, before then, uh, or by, by the time that happens. The higher income tiers are likely treating the excess savings differently than lower income tiers. So it's unclear if people are just socking this away and they're, they're it's cash in the accounts. If they're thinking about it the way they're thinking about their own wealth, you know, we know it's cash sitting there, but are they planning on reinvesting this in, in equities? Are they going to invest it in real estate? Are they thinking about it in retirement terms? You know, it, it's very possible that they're not going to be spending it and probable that they're not going to be spending it in the same way that lower income uh, households are spending it. So I, I think more of the risk there for, for running out before inflation is under control is at the bottom end of the spectrum. Okay. Okay. Another question was around the uh, odds of inflation. So we talked 50, we mentioned there were 50, 50 odds of the uh, baseline where we avoid a, uh, a, uh, a recession, but it's a slow growth environment. 50% odds of recession. Several of the uh, audience members asked what that recession might look like, right? If you can describe that. And, and specifically, they were made references to our various scenarios, the mm -hmm. S2 or the S7 scenarios, which are all recessionary, but they're all a bit different. So maybe you can describe a little bit about uh, a little bit what you think is the most likely path of if there is a recession and what the timing might look like. Yeah, I think that I think the S7 is it's called our next recession scenario and we run this for the US and we recently a few months ago started running it for all countries that we forecast. I think that's the most likely and that's more in line with our narrative about why recession may happen, right? Which is just that the Fed um is struggling to get inflation under control. They're tightening monetary policy. This tightens financial conditions. It, consumers pull back on spending, and it just it it reduces demand to the point that we enter a somewhat relatively mild recession. I think the S so in that sense, the S seven is more um, in line with our 
with our narrative right now. The S2, S3, S4 are probabilistic recessions that are based on kind of historical severities. And a lot of our clients like to use those for stress testing purposes or stress testing their balance sheet for CECL or IFRS 9 accounting purposes. So those are recessions where the recession happens right away in terms of the timing. What's nice about the S7 is it's in line with our narrative of a recession not beginning until late this year. We have a lot of momentum, positive momentum going in the economy right now. So I think it would take something really crazy for us to go into a recession in the next couple of months. So the most likely scenario is the Fed hikes rates once, twice, a couple more times perhaps, rates stay high for the remainder of the year. Um, and then by the end of the year, in this high rate environment, that causes the economy to go into a recession. The recession itself, what would it look like over the course of probably the next four quarters after the recession begins, you get a peak unemployment rate of, I believe, around 6% um, toward the end of 2024. Um, the unemployment rate, as we know right now, is at 3.4%. So um, unemployment at 6%, you're looking at the loss of about 5 million jobs over that time period and a peak to trough decline in GDP of about 2%. So in historical standards relative to take out the pandemic. We don't want to compare really anything to the pandemic, but if you go back to the financial crisis, if you go back to the recession of um, 2001, which was also mild in, in, the, in terms of the length that it occurred, it, it, that's a relatively mild recession when you compare it to sort of the average recessions we've seen since the 80s. All right. Well, thank you. And I'll pass the baton back to you. I think we're, this is the last set of questions, is it not? I believe it is. And, yes. I, and I, for the life of me, I can't remember what it, you're going to ask me. But the fire Well, away. we're going to go a little bit, we're going to go oh, in a couple right. of different directions. Because okay. we kind of yeah. have some random questions yeah, oh, yeah. that we could sure. categorize. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, you were, I think, it's a nice add-on to what you were talking about when we were talking about the debt and that if the nominal uh, rate of growth of the economy uh, is below the cost of financing that debt, then we're in real trouble, right? So let's talk about the cost of financing debt. So if we look at the 10-year yield forecast, um, how does that compare to what markets think? How does how does your forecast of uh, the 10-year yield? And let's let's look at like the the medium term. Um, in addition to the the short run, like how do we think about what sort of the equilibrium ten year yield should be relative to all these other rates? Yeah. Some that the Fed controls. Yeah, the, uh, yeah, great question. I I uh, I think that the equilibrium, so called equilibrium ten year Treasury yield is four percent. That's equal to the nominal potential growth rate of the economy. So in the long run, the nominal potential growth of the economy. The return on capital should equal to the cost of capital, the ten-year Treasury yield, and I get to four percent. That's two percent, roughly real potential GDP growth, plus the two percent inflation target. So two plus two is four, and that's nominal potential GDP growth. And empirically, that works out. I mean, there are long periods when the actual ten-year yield is higher or lower than that equilibrium uh, yield. And by the way, that equilibrium yield is not. Static, it changes over time given 
the potential growth rate of the economy. So, it, you know, it was if you go back 30 years ago when the potential growth of the economy was higher, then the equilibrium tenure yield was higher. So it's come down. Um, so, uh, uh, oh, I was going to say, if you go look at uh, over a long period of time, so like if you go back uh, to 1970, look at the last 50, 60 years and at, take the average of the 10-year treasury yield and the and and the growth rate in nominal GDP, they are exactly equal to each other within a basis point or two. So, you know, empirically, theoretically, it should be the nominal potential growth rate of the economy. That's the 10-year yield. That's about roughly where we are today. I, mean, I was just looking, you know, the 10-year yield is sitting at 3.87. So, you know, that's within spitting distance of where we should be, you know, in the long run. Um, it was well below, uh, 10-year yield was well below the uh, the equilibrium yield throughout the period between the financial crisis and, you know, most recently. But, I, you know, I think that goes to some, you know, significant headwinds to inflation that caused the Federal Reserve to be uh, over, uh, constantly trying to get inflation up. So it was uh, following a very loose monetary policy and that easy monetary policy and that kept, you know, long-term yields Below its long run equilibrium, intentionally in an effort to get inflation back up to back up to target. I don't think that's the case going forward. You know, now I think instead of uh, tailwinds, uh, headwinds to inflation, we're going to have tailwinds to inflation. We talked a little bit about climate. There's you know decoupling, deglobalization. Mm -hmm. There's labor market issues and wages. So I think the Fed's going to be fighting another battle going forward, and that is trying to keep inflation down. And that means that might keep pushing rates up a little higher than that equilibrium yield, you know, over, you know, over extended periods of time. So I think the risks here, you know, have changed quite uh, considerably, but it's about 4%. Just as a benchmark, I keep going back to that CBO paper that was done mm -hmm. in, on, uh, released on February 15th. I highly recommend it. Their 10-year uh, treasury yield in the long run is, wait, wait for it, wait for it, wait for it, 3.8%. So, I think, you know, 3.8, 4%. I'm not, they got 3.8 because they say long, real, real potential growth is 1.8, not two. So I think it's closer to two, but I'm not going to fight over it. You know, one so point or four. That kind of one of the questions was what would account for the differences in what you or anyone who's forecasting this thinks the long term 10 year yield would be. And is that primarily the assumption that differs? It's what's the long run growth rate of the economy? Well, I, I'm, I'm coming at it like an economist. You got other people in the market that don't, they're not thinking like I think. They got different models, different perspectives, different views. And uh, three quarters of the time, I don't understand what, what, what the, <laughs> where they're coming from. Usually it's, you know, it's a, you know, uh, what interest rates were in the last six months to 12 months is going to determine their forecast for the next 60 years, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, they were looking a lot more right than I was back before the pandemic, right? Because people were saying, looking at our forecast, because it was always going to 4%, always going to 4%, saying, you, what, are you, what are you talking about? Chris would come back with, you know, a lot of folks were questioning our long run, you know, 10 year treasury yield. They wouldn't do it to me directly. <laughs> Chris would say, what the hell is he smoking? You know, why is it, you know, what, why is, why is he so much higher than everybody else? Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I, it, that's the stake in the ground. And, you know, it's like every asset price. It's like a stock price. It's like, you know, all asset prices 
have an equilibrium price and the actual price can deviate from that over long periods of time. But ultimately in the long run, it comes back to that equilibrium price. It's just hard to know exactly when, because there's all these other dynamics going on, it's sentiment and it's, you know, in the case of the 10-year treasury yield, it's not only what's happening here, it's what's happening all over the planet, right? Because, yeah. you know, it's a it's a global market and you've got a lot of forces globally that are, you know, that are working. I will say though, I am predisposed to think, you know, going forward, the 10-year yield is going to be on the high side of four, not the low side of four. I mentioned, you know, inflation, but I also think going back to the budget deficits, you know, that would argue, because uh, that's a lot of debt that's going to be going into the marketplace, a lot of treasury debt, and the Fed's not going to be buying it, hopefully. You know, they're not going to be QEing, they're QTing, they're allowing their balance sheet to wind down. So if that's the case, it feels like, you know, if anything, it's going to be on the high side of four, not on the on the south, the north side of four, not on the south side of four, four going four. But our forecast is is four. It's our, it's our forecast. By the way, that implies a five and a half to six percent 30-year fixed rate mortgage, right? Because this the typical spread. It, off the 10-year treasury is about 150, 175 basis points. So if you told me that the 30-year fixed over the next 10 years is going to average five and three quarters percent, I say that sounds about right to me. And by the way, right now it's six to six and a half. You know, maybe up a little bit in the last couple of days because of what's going on in the bond market, but that's you know roughly where it's been. So we're not that far away from where it will be. It's on the high, a little bit on the high side, but not a lot on the high side. The market's going to have to adjust to these higher interest rates. The mortgage market, the housing market is going to have to adjust to these, you know, higher rates going forward. Okay. Of course, is that, I'm, I'm going to throw that back to you. What do you think of the way I just explained that? Does that make sense to you? It does. It's sort of the theoretical equilibrium, but as you said, a lot of things are influential in the, in the medium to even long term, right? So it's, it's hard to say. And I think the, the international aspect is something you need to consider here that the 10 year treasury today is not just a us asset it's it's global so it can be it, my bias would be that it could actually be a little bit lower because of that uh, of that additional demand from overseas but that could change very rapid i don't think you want to make a forecast um based on that uh, trend persisting forever All right. okay so, any others you want to Far away, maybe doing up. Is there one more? Well, we had that that closing question that I want to save. That, yeah. Um, okay. So okay. I don't know how much time we have. Should I do that? Go ahead. Fire away. We'll do it real quick. Fire uh, lightning round. All right. The closing question is: What do you think the best historical analogy is to what we are experiencing now from an economic perspective? Oh. Right, right. You want to want to take that? I like this question. Of course, you want me to well, go? I would. I would go ahead. Why don't you go first? No, you go first. I think it's okay, like a I'll natural disaster, no. right? I mean, <laughs> I think Sorry. that if you look at the, the pandemic, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. Late. Bad joke. Um, yeah. Uh, if you look at the severity of the pandemic and what happened and the supply chain disruptions and not necessarily everything that followed, but just the just catastrophic, very sharp, quick destruction in the economy, it's kind of like a natural disaster. Yeah. When we would model natural disasters, and I did this a lot when I was, you know, very focused on regional work, you know, you would see events like a hurricane 
hurricane or a fire or a tornado or an earthquake, and you would just get this massive, massive shock, supply side shock, right? To a, to a greater extent than demand to the economy. And you would see this sharp fall and then this extremely strong rebound as things get rebuilt and, and things come back online. So that's what I go to is some sort of exogenous catastrophic event like that. Now, other things have happened since the pandemic um, that have kind of piled on to the situation, but that's sort of the way I think about it when I talk about it. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I think that's a good frame for thinking about this. Yeah. And, and it's very uh, kind of mind-numbing uh, because it, it's hitting the supply side. People think of the economies from the prism of demand because that's mm -hmm. typically what's been what drives the business cycle. The ups and downs is demand is strong, demand is weak. You know, the Fed's raising rates and demand is weak. You don't really focus on the supply side except for long-run forecasts. You know, what's the economy going to do in the long run? But when you have a, a supply shock, which again, that, that pandemic and the Russian invasion are massive, mm -hmm. massive global supply shocks right on one on top of the other, you know, that, that, that makes you have to think about demand and supply and the relationship between the two. And then you're thinking about prices, which is the, you know, the the, the result of the these, these demand and supply forces working with and against each other, very difficult to do. Uh, and that's why there's been so much confusion and so much debate and so much, um, you know, difficulty gauging all this, I think, for, you know, for people. And for us, you know, it's been a you know difficult you know time to do forecasting. Although I think I feel pretty good about our forecasting, you know, throughout this uh, the pandemic period. I think we did. A, of course, uh, I probably wouldn't say otherwise, but it's, I think it's I think we did a pretty good job. We're really off the mark. <laughs> but I think that's 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 a beautiful answer. I think that is that is the answer. Yeah, Chris, anything you want to add to that? Or it's a it's a great. I, I, the only the way I would have answered it. Is I, I think there is actually no historical analog. It, yeah. it is so different yeah. what we're experiencing today that um, I don't even want to give it a historical analog because I don't want someone to go back and say, oh, it, well, it's kind of like the 70s and take a look at what happened there and fail to consider everything else that is so different demographically and the supply chain effects that you talked about, Mark. So, you know, I hate to, I hate the phrase, but I actually do think in terms of the uh, the current situation this time is different. There are uh, many different forces. He said it. I was waiting for him to say that. <laughs> In terms it's, of what the recession is going to look like, yes, <laughs> it is different. Does that apply to the yield curve? He My still believes the yield curve is a harbinger of recession. <laughs> oh yeah, don't uh, discount the yield curve quite yet. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah. Okay, very good. Well, would, this was very. How about you, Mike? Would you answer that, Mark? Uh, I, I like the way you, I like the way you answered it. Uh, I think it is uh, analogous to a, you know a uh, massive global natural two natural disasters piled on top of each other. Uh, that's what it feels like to me. Uh, and you know the, kind of the metaphor I have in my mind is the economy is this this uh, little paper ship in the middle of the ocean. Or maybe in a maybe better in a pond, right? You take a rock, you throw it. And this is what I would do when I was ten years old. Hit near the the um, the ship, and that's the pandemic. And the ship's going like this, you know, like crazy, like this. 
And then you go, oh, let's throw another rock. And that's the Russian invasion. And it is. And the thing is going like this. And you're afraid it's going to tip over. And the only reason it didn't tip over is because of pretty deft policymaking by the Federal Reserve and the federal government. They stepped in and they righted the ship, you know, kind of kept it going. But the ship is still doing this, still trying to, you know, navigate around. And by the way, it's the it's the waves created by the one and then the waves created by the other. And then the two of them, the waves coming together that really complicate things. So that's the kind of the metaphor I have in mind. But I think, you know, that's that's an, that's the natural disaster. That's the kind of, you know, what it does. So I think that's exactly right. I think it's a great answer. Okay, we're going to call this quits. In fact, this feels like, you know, we did this as an answer to a webinar. But I, geez whiz, this feels like a podcast to me somehow. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> what do you think? Maybe we can do it both. could be. The bonus podcast, Inside, Inside Economics. Watch it. Listen to it. You know, we do that every every Friday. Okay, with that, we're going to call it a, uh, a uh, I don't know what we're going to call this, whatever this is. A right? webinar Q&A session. A webinar Q&A. We are <laughs> out. And there it is. That was our Q&A uh, session in response to all the uh, hundreds of questions we got uh, in our webinar a couple of weeks ago. I, ho I hope you found it of some interest, some value. Uh, let us know if you did. And um, with that, we're going to call it a podcast. Take care, everyone.